Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally, and all of our programming is brought to you by you, the people at Patreon. Thank you very much for your support and helping to make this channel what it is. If it wasn't for you, it'd just be me and Scott hanging out on a Sunday morning, having a conversation. We're also brought to you by truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK for additional savings on high-quality, third-party tested supplements from a company that you can trust. Hit me up if you have any questions about them. Supplement source for our .ca for our Canadians. Great deals that change week to week. And byobbcoach.com. That's Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. You can also get Scott's book if you go to Amazon. Or he's got a link that you can go straight to it and save five bucks on the hardcover. So, 15. Oh, actually. it's 15. That's a heck of a deal yeah. then. So, yeah, yeah that's a nice. great deal. So I'm going to post this comment first because the, the question was, is, is basically, what is the one common thread in all good training plans, right, Scott? And mm -hmm. Chris has a good guess here. He says it has to be consistency, taking bets now. And Mike agrees with him. He says most definitely, which I can't argue with that, right? Like if you're not consistent with yes. your training plan, you're, you're not going to get anything. So there's got to be that, right? But that's not where you're going. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but scientifically, you could say that too. Um, if, if people don't, they will throw out data if someone doesn't adhere. Whatever adherence criteria are set, um, and that's not always, but most of the time, they will uh, indicate the editor should have asked them, like, what was the what was the adherence level of your of your subjects to your training protocol? So, you know, if someone goes in and only makes like seven out of ten training training days in the lab or 70 percent of the uh, the training um the training days and you throw them out because that's going to dramatically ch uh, change what happens in terms of the results so that's always got to be in there yeah that happens a lot too I mean, you look at like just actually adherence or reasons for dropout is is very very insightful oftentimes okay you look at certain programs like you can not going to call it any study but you can look and see sometimes that certain training programs that are harder or maybe higher volume or what have you sometimes would have higher dropout rates. Yeah. It's not always. Sometimes it's, it's actually going to be the other way around too. Hmm. Um, and, and you don't know always why and people don't always want to tell you the truth. You know, we're, everyone's human, but it could be like, oh, well, shit. Like we know that this, like we'll talk about the NS study that we mentioned last time where they worked their way up to 52 sets in the highest volume regime. Let's say someone goes into that study and they're like, okay, no, you know the purpose of the study. They have to be properly informed before they can give their consent. And it's like, well, shit, I'm in the control condition. I'm just doing 22 sets. And I really wanted to work. I really wanted to be in the special condition that they're testing to see if, if, is, if it's better, even though technically might be testing a null hypothesis. Yeah. That's what you do statistically. You, you presume there's going to be no difference, basically. But then people are like, well, this is sucks. You know, this is, I'm, I'm like, I'm. I'm getting the placebo kind of, so I'm, I'm not going to stick with it. And they, and they have a buddy, let's say, who's like, oh, this is working great for me. Right. People often, like, guys go in, like, training, okay, let's do this thing. We'll both do this for the next eight or 12 weeks, whatever they ask us. So sometimes people drop out in the, in the placebo condition, and they don't always ask, why did you drop out? You know, sometimes you don't see reasons for dropouts. It's not, it's not published. Sometimes it's because they know they're in the placebo. They figure it out. Like, well. with, with, with creatine. Okay. Right? So you haven't had any creatine for a year, but everyone knows creatine puts weight on you right after you start taking it. Yeah. So guys are hopping on the scale like, you know, twice a day to see if they're in the creatine condition. Right. And and they talk amongst themselves. It's like, yeah, I put on six pounds in the last week. I think I'm on the creatine. I'm in the creatine condition. It's like my weight didn't change shit. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and I'm just, I'm quitting the study and I'm getting on the creatine, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. But that so, said, though, that's not where you're going today, right? Oh, also, no, I want to mention too. Principle that I was going to talk about, but Chris mentioned he said uh, hit the hit the like button, which I agree with. Oh, Thanks yeah. for reminding us. And if you're new to our content, then let me encourage you to subscribe because we have several bodybuilding podcasts that come out each week. You know, if we uh, if we provide something to you today, definitely we'd we'd appreciate the like and all that stuff. So, what is the topic, Scott? They're dying to know. It's it's very simple. It's progressive overload. You know, which everyone sort of kind of assumes, right? If, if the diet's going to work, you have to eat all the food on the diet. You have to follow right. it. And, and I posted this and it kind of fell flat. So I figured it would be um, appropriate maybe to cover it on the podcast to give it a little more traction. And interestingly enough, I did cover it in a podcast about two weeks ago. And it got I just shared it again um, because a clip, um, I forget the name of the guy's podcast, but the clip came out. People can see my story right now of where I'm talking about this very thing. And um, if you could pull up that first image I sent you. Sure thing. Kind of, this is the Instagram post. And it's not like, it's not very. I looked at him like, God, that, that doesn't really come across as being as cool as I thought it might be. This one? So all this is, like, there's a, bu- a big block of text, right? <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, and a bunch of red lines. These are just, I just went through, I think there's f- f- six, yeah, six different studies I found. I just kind of pulled them out. There are a couple I found that, that, I, that I could not find these passages, but I looked in the methods section. Um, that's really the kind of the most important thing when we're thinking about, okay, what can I take from this study? to apply to my own training. That's kind of the, kind of the point here. So if we look at high volume versus lower volume, we're progressing the volume or um, stretch media hypertrophy or drop sets versus straight sets or cluster sets or auto-regulation or periodization or whatever it, may, whatever it might be, um, you want to see what actually was done. Not just from looking at the abstract, but you have to, be, have to pretty much download the paper and read through the certain methods section. Sometimes it's a little bit of a rabbit hole because they will say, as described previously, and then you have and they have a link or a, sorry, a reference, which will take you to another paper. So you have to go and read in that paper. That's a nice time and, and safe spacer, space, space saver for them. But the key feature that you find in all of these studies, pretty much, um, and I think it's almost universally, unless they're intentionally not trying to um, employ this strategy in their training, it's universally implied and should be should be explicitly described in the method section that they are applying progressive overload in some way, shape, or form. Right. So, um, if you look at the top, there is Quizardo, um, is Quierdo, I think is how you say that. Uh, assigned training intensities were, and then I, I've got a. Uh, the number of viewers uh, buttons in the way, but were, were increased. Progressive resistance training principle was employed. Um, load was adjusted to each exercise session. Load was increased by two to ten percent, and two to fifteen percent for lower body exercise, etc. You can read through those sections, and these were in the method section of those respective papers. Um, back from back starting in 1990 was the Bob Starin paper. Great paper. Um, and then, you know, the most recent one I pulled out was 2021. You find this everywhere, even in that, and you can pull that, pull that down. Right. It's very hard to read. I imagine especially <laughs> someone's on a phone. Um, that's probably why I did it to work so well on, uh, on Instagram, but it's in all papers. This is the universal principle. It's the, it's the basic aspect of every resistance training regime, unless they're intentionally trying to not progressively overload. I found a, um, a recently published, actually, endurance exercise 
regime looking at responders and non-responders to see if there's a difference between that they started a certain exercise intensity and duration um, and just did that for X number of weeks or they progressed it as you typically would as your heart rate adjusts or what have you. And of course, you got better responses when they apply progressive overload. So you might be testing that, that you don't have overloading, of course, across the entire training regime. But otherwise, it's always there. And the thing that's kind of interesting is if you're training scientifically and, and you see so many uh, Instagram posts, um, you know, is that scientific? Is that evidence based? What happened? Mm, right. Yeah. The people are saying, you know, I'm doing following this regime, following this is my 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 training philosophy based on this evidence based information that I've gathered and I'm doing this, that or the other. And so people show they're doing um, applying some particular technique in their training or they're training with certain exercises that show greater EMGs or yeah. whatever it may all the plethora of things. But you don't see people saying, here's my logbook. And here's my progressive flipping through the pages of the logbook. Yeah. You know, and, and here, here's what I, and it's not, it's not all that, it's not all that glamorous. Yeah. That's the meat and potatoes. That's the basics. Right. Would you say that if you were to take, and and this is kind of a, you know, it's not a, an easy question to answer because there's like a lot of variables to it, but let's say you took an exercise that was, um, like evidence based that using this particular movement will give you better quad activation or more quad activation versus mm-hmm. something that was maybe not quite as good. If you took the something that was not quite as good but continued to progress with it, it sounds like you're telling me you'd probably get better results than using the the optimal exercise and not working to your limits and pushing and progressing every time. It's very possible. The interesting thing, that's why this, this paper, maybe there's something out there. I know there is one resistance training exercise study, um, and I could find it where they actually found really good muscle growth, and it was with a, um, an isokinetic type of device where they just kept all the parameters the same, okay. and they saw really good growth. But typically, you don't have, we don't have science to answer that question directly because everyone employs progressive overload. It just makes total. It's so ingrained as a background um, assumption that this needs to needs to be the case. Yeah. And of course, you know, if you start off with, let's say, someone who adapts readily to this exercise, let's take a study. Let's say where they're where they're untrained at the beginning, and so they're going to make pretty pretty impressive gains. They might. Let's say you're with. Old, let's really take take the, the perfect situation. And you're with older folks, you know, who are somewhat sedentary and they're. They're detrained and deconditioned as well, and so you can see like there's a study from like 1990 with Fatteroni, and they like they like doubled knee extensions. There's like 200 percent increases in knee extension strength really? over the course of like eight weeks. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, but they're going from like you know 10 pounds knee extension one RM, you know, to 22 pounds or something. Right. But if you just kept that the same every week, you know, four or five weeks in, be like, oh, this is this is pie. This is nothing. There's obviously there's no exertion here. So you, of course, you always increase those things. So, but back to your question, that's a really good. That's a really good question because, also, when you're looking at EMGs, if let's say that's it, or looking at relative activation during different exercises, that is also highly variable amongst individuals. <clears throat> you're going to see patterns, of course. You're going to. That's why you can find significant differences in particular studies when you look at the activation patterns during leg press versus the squat or what have you. But. Everyone is a little bit different. 
Um, so, and the thing that, like, even if we look at that, that piece of information, um, and someone, let's say they, um, we're comparing like a squat to a leg press. And let's say that you look at, uh, um, let's say, let's say knee extension. So knee extensions, you get really, you tend to get better activation and growth in the rectus femoris than you do in like a leg or let's say a squat. Um, so, um, very possibly for many people, yeah, they could just stick with the knee extension. They haven't been doing those. But yeah. if they don't, and they're going to get some growth, but eventually it's going to plateau out if they just stayed that way. So let's let's follow them over two years and take someone who does knee extensions, just three sets of 10, 100 pounds. They can do that when they start, and two years later, they're still doing that. They're going to probably get some growth in their rectus femoris, but if they take their, their squats and they go from – 135 pounds to 185 pounds, 225 pounds. They're doing, you know, 235 pounds for three sets of 10. Yeah. Then they're going to probably get some better growth. I would expect on average, but everyone differs as to what that, what that exercise selection is. And no one really do that too. You wouldn't take, if you're trying to, if you know you have an exercise and this is of course going by field, if you have an exercise, you have better activation to give a muscle group, then that's the one you'd want to progress with as best as possible. And I hearken back to Dante. This is what, you know, Dante would always would say for people who are advanced to have weak muscle groups that they can't seem to bring up is get funky with it. Yeah. Find an exercise, find kind of biomechanical angle, put the muscle on stretch, disadvantage yourself in some way so that, that muscle must be activated. Um, and you can't use accessory muscles or mm. you can't activate other muscles that are involved in the kinetic chain the way your, your particular um, neuromuscular system tends to do. There's be some neuromechanical matching that goes on, right? So certain muscles are activated based on the biomechanical leverages that you have. Yes. That makes that as easy as possible for you to move the weight, right? Yeah. And like powerlifters want to use as much muscle as possible and make things as easy as possible on those that maximum available muscle mass. And bodybuilders want to do just the opposite, make yeah. things as difficult as possible for for the targeted amount of muscle that you're trying to hit with a given exercise. You know, figuring that out was one of the, like to, to, to really figure out how to put yourself in, in like the disadvantaged position was such mm -hmm. an eye opener for me. And uh, I've, I've said it many times before, but it was Dave Smith helping me with my chest press. And then I translated that to my yeah. back work. So, you know, I, 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 I've told the story a lot of times, so I won't tell the whole thing, but I was only using like, you know, the, the top two thirds of the dumbbell bench press movement. I wasn't, he explained to me that if I got further down into that hole, that I would basically disengage the shoulders, disengage the triceps. I'd be forced to then activate that exercise from the target muscle first. And mm -hmm. I, and from there, I, I figured, I figured out how to move that to back, starting from a full stretch being in that full stretched position, I could feel the lat activate first. The biceps weren't, you know, the arm wasn't bent anymore where I'm holding mm -hmm. tension in the bicep. That arm was just coming up straight. And then I was able to activate from the lat first. Mm -hmm. To me, that was, I would say, as, you know, I, I would say at that point, a very experienced trainer having done it for a long time, learned from a mm -hmm. lot of people that it was like such an eye opener, learning that one thing on the bench press translated to so many different exercises and I saw better growth than I could have ever hoped for or expected in my mid forties, you know? Right. Right. It, it basically becomes a different exercise. Yeah, it really does. And it was you like know? getting newbie like gains, 
because it mm-hmm. was being activated in a way it hadn't been activated before. I know um, I've seen this just in my recent experience with my with my hips ah. um, and the rehab. Uh, and I'd always sort of known this, but it's been kind of really interesting and dramatic. So I've also I got the the hip replacement, which is basically that's good to go. I've got this hematoma that was on the right side. There's a massive uh, adhesion scar adhesion area that's actually it's adhering to um, the sartorius muscle. It gives me pain on the sartorius muscle sometimes down my middle of my quad too. And I also have nerve damage <laughs> because the doctor went in to try to um, drain that hematoma when there was oh yeah drain, and, he, and he hit the, hit the nerve. So I have all sorts of weird stuff going on. But what I've done, what I've kind of found out is when um, I, I couldn't really go terribly deep on a squat um, right. when I was doing those, those body weight squats because of the hematoma, because literally my, I was running into the hematoma. I could oh, feel it. Okay. You know, I'm like, and, and this was when it was a, you know, a large mass. I'm like, I don't want to burst this thing. It's oh, already, God. it's already getting irritated by the more exercise. As hardcore getting, as you are in the gym, you didn't want to, you didn't want to rupture that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, actually it probably would have been good because I had <laughs> no, really. I mean, like this is what the doctor even said. The, what caused all this is that they let me walk around after I was done with the surgery and they kept me at the hospital for three hours when they're checking me out. I walked around too much. And when I got home, literally, they didn't check me when I left. Long story short, I got home and my left side bled out. I had to go back to the ER. And the left side's great, right? Because it got all that blood out of there. But on the right side, the blood stayed. Yeah. And I had a hematoma. And they dip, they didn't want to drain it. And the, the main thing, I actually told the doc, I was like, I'm thinking about draining it myself. Um, he's like, he's just super nice guy. But he's like, he's like, you do that, he gets infected, it goes down to the bone, and we got to redo your entire hip. Oh, God. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So that's, yeah. they're really, like, the sterility procedures they go, they have to go through in order to do these these hip um, replacements are pretty, pretty extraordinary. I can only like, imagine. So deep. Because everything's, yeah, everything's so deep in there. And from what I have read, I didn't ask the doctor this, I probably should, but um, like with me, for instance, they did the one hip. And for understand, because they did me at the end of the day, they go in and they, they re-sterilize everything. He, he literally, they, they swap out as if they're starting with a new person. Um, and then they do the other side. So anyway, back to the, back to the topic. Ooh, I want to add just real quick too, before you get into the topic, okay. or again, I just want to say, if you guys have any questions too, we're going to take questions. And I do somebody see somebody was asking us about um, strength gains. What what should we expect over a year period of time? So know that I see your question and I've put a little bookmark on it and we will get back to it. Anybody else that has questions, start commenting and I'll keep my eye on those and we'll get back to them when Scott's done explaining this. All right. Thank okay. you. All right. So what it's sort of forced me to do is is pay particular attention to the depth which I can do squats. Yeah. And everyone says an inch is a mile in the squat and it's totally true. Yeah, I can I can go all the way down now to like rock bottom, literally where you know as deep as I can go. My my hamstrings are ramming into my calves. Instagram um, my worthy. Butts, you know, yeah, right, right. And you know I'm not I'm not banging my my sacrum on the on the ground or anything like that. But yeah, as deep as I'm going to go, right. And the weight I'm, I can use for squats is like half what I would do if I go okay. down to like 90, between 90% and um, a 90 degree and, and, and parallel. Um, so it does make a huge difference and it becomes literally, and it, so I'm, and I make note of this in my logbook. Um, if I go as deep as possible and I have, I have safeties on my, um, my home iron master setup, 
then it's a to- I consider it a totally different exercise because the weight I can use, I can't, it's not even comparable. Really? So if I want to go to town and I have actually 11 holes showing, that's kind of deep. You know, it's it, it works and it hits the quads pretty well and I get some good activation. That's different than if I have like eight holes showing. And mm. It's only about this much difference in terms of depth. Yeah. But it's completely different exercise. I mean, that's a lot. That, that much. Really six, six inches. That's a lot in a squat, you know. It's, it's huge. It's huge. So that's the thing, you know, um, that does play a role in this. Obviously, in these studies, they're constraining the form. They're using the same machines. They have they have they don't always say this, but um, to some degree, they're they're at least visually uh, doing their best to main, ensure that people are not cutting their range of motion short in order to, to progress the load. Yeah. But progressive overload always always is involved there. So there's an interesting study that just came out. Um, Brad Schoenfeld, Mike Isertel were on the study. Plotkin is the first name. I think this is actually third image I sent. The first one, I left one little piece of information out. Um, the the third the, one? The Do third one, yeah. The, one, yeah, the second one, like, I ignore that. The third yep. one. This one? Yeah, yeah, that one. You can make right. it probably full screen so we can see it all. all right. This just came out not too long ago. It was an eight-week study, resistance training individuals. Twice a week, they're doing four sets each to failure. Barbell squat, knee extension, stiff or straight-legged calf, and a seated calf. Um, and what you see here, all those dots... Um, are the individual data points for individuals in one of two groups. So in the load group, they, they, attended, they intended to progressively overload so that they stayed in the 8 to 12 rep range. So typical, we're going to do 8 to 12 reps in a traditional loading range and move the load up. And with the reps condition, they stuck with about a 10 rep max load. They set that at the beginning of the eight weeks, and then they just progressed the load. Sorry, then they just progressed the reps. So they just kept on doing more and more and more reps. And what you see here are changes in muscle thickness. Um, the top row is the rectus femoris. So the upper left is RF at 30%, then at 50%, just next to that, 70%. And then they have a um, summary score. Okay. That's just the different links or different positions along the length of the rectus femoris. Um, and it's the percent increase in those different conditions. So if you look at the top upper left, interestingly enough, we got all the red dots. Those are the load progressions. Those are the ones who stayed heavy and um, kept on adding weight as they went along. And in okay. the reps, they stayed with the same load. And eventually, of course, it became lighter as things went along. Um, because the reps are going up. Same absolute load, but relatively easier as they adapted to it. And no difference. You can, there's really, there was no difference in growth in, in any condition here. Um, there's little average lines you can probably faintly make out. But the interesting thing there is look at this variability. So in that, in that sort of scatter plot for the load condition, all those red dots, Some person, some, one person at... Um, in the upper left at 30% down on the rectus femoris. A couple people were, were nine, nine and a half, getting up close to 10% in the load condition. And then there were some poor sods, like there always are, who didn't make any gains. Nothing happened. So you can read across that top of the rectus femoris, and you see, you just see scatters, scatter plots, basically, of the individuals with an average of, you know, 4, 4% or so, up, upwards of 5% on average, increase in um, uh, changes in muscle thickness, but it's all over the place. So hmm. some people did really well, 
under either condition. Some people did not so well. They got nothing. What we don't know, they didn't do a crossover. They didn't train one leg one way and one leg the other way, which would have been really cool to see, is if some people would re- would have responded better to one type of training versus the other. Mm. We don't know that. Maybe that's a follow-up study they got coming out. That's the thing. Okay. But, it's, but in either way, progressive overload is effective. But in this, for whatever reasons, for some people, it didn't work that well, regardless of how they went about it. But you can progressive over progressive overload with by increasing the weight, keeping your reps same, eight to 12, eight to twelve range, or keeping the weight the same and then just increasing your reps. And eventually, at some point, um, if you're taking you know a ten rep max on a leg press and Three years later, that becomes a 50 rep set. Yeah. Right. You might want to increase the weight, right? It eventually can kind of get a little ridiculous. Um, but both of those work. Vastus lateralis, the same thing. The bottom is the lateral medial gastroc and the soleus muscle. They did some calf training too. Um, and you see the same thing. The soleus muscle barely grew, but it, it, for some people, it grew pretty well, but it barely grew at all. Hmm. The, ga- the calves obviously didn't grow terribly well. We, this is what typically expect. So better growth in the the quad muscles they examined yeah and not as much growth in the calf muscles so that makes sense yeah and um in this study too like go to that next this is just kind of interesting um the let me see here it's a little bit smaller they Got had a, a kind of a muscle endurance test and a one rep max test okay you i was thinking oh, this would have been interesting you would have expected that the people who trained in the reps condition where they were increasing reps and they're so they're they're moving more towards a muscle endurance um, type of uh, scenario that they um, might do better in terms of muscle endurance, but it wasn't the case. They did mm. a, a rep, um, a rep max, um, and they, this is the change in the amount of reps that they, they could do. This is the middle graph I'm looking at now, loads versus reps is the same. Actually, the change in one rep max was the same too. Didn't matter if they trained heavy or went lighter. But they weren't doing one rep maxes. They weren't okay. training in the you know like powerlifters were. So they were they were far so far away from a one rep max that really didn't seem to be much of a specificity of training effect visible here. Yeah. Um, and then and they had a um, a counter movement jump, and that didn't change at all. Sometimes they make these measurements, I guess, just for the can. Some people lost counter movement jump height. Interesting enough, some people went up, but on average, there's nothing. So. Always interesting little tidbits they do. So the bottom line here is that you can progress both with reps, you can progress both with load. Um, so that's so that's the scientific way that things are typically done. And what's nice about that, which you don't see in regards to, and this is kind of one of the limitations to most all studies, unless they're examining this phenomenon, is when they take an ex- a training program Let's say let's take this NS study where they increased um, six six sets every two weeks throughout the study, so they got to like fifty two sets at the end. They did that irregardless of of w- what kind of progress you were making, hmm. right? They just that's that was the condition you're in, and whether you felt like you could handle that increase in volume, they just kept on doing that, right? So what that means is that like if you want to take that on board and you just follow that blindedly it's mm-hmm. it's just out there it's a black and white it may work for you if or may not it may you may find six weeks into that's not working yeah. it would be like saying here's your diet and i'm going to give you a diet for the next 12 weeks right. right and it's a gaining diet and you're going to just add you know 
500 calories per per day every two weeks or whatever. Okay. Okay. Or 250 calories, and and you're going to do that regardless of what happens to your body composition. Yeah. Right. You may be able to handle more because of whatever else you've got going on, or right. maybe that's too much. Maybe you're maybe that's way above what you're getting. So if if that's a huge limitation in the way these training programs are. Absolutely. Are, it has to be done scientifically to some degree because we want it. We're testing a specific phenomenon. The nice thing about progressive overload, the way it's typically employed, let's say in that load condition, the last in the Plotkin, Plotkin study, is that the built, the movement up in weight is based on their training performance. So they don't increase the weight until they know that your reps are getting above the rep range. Okay, yeah. So Which it's makes sense. auto-regulated based on the individual. Yeah. A lot of these, like, but here's an example, um, like a real world example. So one thing that, like, when I was doing DC training, that I sort of, I don't know if with Dante we talked about this. He said it's fine. Um, I don't know if he actually ever specifically said to do this, but one thing I would do with with people who were doing DC training as they got closer to shows and their recovery abilities went down mm. is I would take those triple rest pause sets of DC training and drop off one of the failure points. Oh, okay. So instead of doing failure point, failure point, failure point, and then pulses or partials or what have you, I would just do two, right? And some people might even go to one. As long as you can maintain your performance, you know, you still got, you're still lifting the same loads. You right. can maintain with much less volume and that matched recovery. So, Let's say you got a, a got a condition where you're comparing uh, drop sets versus straight sets, right? And someone and is trained with a high volume, and you're six weeks in, or in a ten week or twelve week study, and people, someone's like, "Oh, this is getting tough." It was working really well for me, but this is getting to be too much. I can sense um, from my perceived recovery that triple drop sets on all of these things is too much. Well, if you're in a study tough shit you're just gonna have to keep on doing that that's right. the condition you're in that's what we're testing so you can as i mentioned we've mentioned it several times has come up that could be someone who did really well for a period of time and then they start to regress yeah. or they start to plateau and maybe even regress near the end if they continue that way because that there's accumulation of fatigue that eventually makes makes that way more than what they can recover from but if you instead of doing triple drop sets you drop that down to two drop sets it may be that drop sets are more or, or effective because they're increasing the effective reps or effective time under tension at a given training volume um, for a period of time. But that time component and that auto-regulatory component is often missing from these research studies. Um, with the exception of the one thing that was really, really nice is that the rate of progression in the pro of the progressive overload that's employed is based on the person's training responses and adaptations. And so that's that's why I think that's the thing that is that's sort of the it's universally scientifically employed. Um, and but when you have to, when you want to have specific conditions that you're testing, um, if the question you're asking is whether adding six sets every two weeks is better than adding four sets every two weeks, better than adding zero sets every two weeks, then you have to ask that question. That's different than asking a question whether um, using these markers of recovery whether we employed a progressive volume regime that is dictated upon the individual responses of the, of the subject per se. So another question to ask would be, let's say we, we incorporate 
perceived recovery in some way, shape, or form. Let's say you want to do heart rate recover, uh, heart rate variability measures, perceived recovery, cortisol levels. Overtraining is a difficult thing with resistance exercise. We don't have much, have much data there. But in some way, perhaps even look at the at the rate at which someone's progressing, and say if, for instance, just you, you got to start somewhere. If we don't see a progression in loads for more than three for three weeks or more, or at the after three weeks, then we stop increasing volume, right? Yeah. And and there there are people, as we showed in that study, that that actually lost size. Hmm. And I wish this is my this is my oh, this would be my dream come true if people start plotting correlating the training data with the gains that are made. Because yeah, that would be great. Overlook. That's the underlying idea is that the more you can gain in training, the better your gains are going to be in terms of muscle mass. There's just some association there between form and function. Yeah. Right. So what if we what if we employ a more practically based model? where the extent to which volume is increased if we're going to examine the increasing volume type of strategy of progressive overload, that the extent to which that progressive overload is applied is a function of the extent to which the person seems to be adapting to the training program, which you'll see in the training loads of the progression in their, in their, in their ability to handle higher weights, higher loads as things go on. So you get to six weeks and someone's not adding any training load and you keep on adding volume and their training loads stay the same or even regress. Well, hello, hello. No, that's not a good idea, right? But that, but in order to answer that question, the way it's been set out in that condition, that's what you do, regardless of what's going on. Yeah. Right. We're going to yeah. cook this. We're going to cook. We're going to bake this cake for four hours. And if the house catches on fire, it doesn't matter. We're still going to bake it for four hours, regardless of what practical signs and symptoms we might have like okay it's time to stop baking the cake we're, we're, this is this is not a this doesn't make sense and that's probably a poor metaphor but that is what can possibly happen and i wish these data could be brought forth you know they have them because every time someone comes in as a subject just like if you're training a person training someone in the gym they've got a logbook there they're writing this stuff down it's like okay you know maybe some people you know have kind of a photographic memory and they know that you know subject 12 used 125 pounds last time on exercise X, Y, or Z, right. and they, they're going to move it up. But most of the time, they're looking at that stuff, you know. So it'd be very, very clear. So, so the main point is that progressive overload is the thing that is uh, sort of the most scientifically universally applied strategy, and it's the one that is least glorified on Instagram. Interestingly enough, because it's but it's the most badass. Yeah, yeah, it <laughs> really mean, is. It really is like you show. I remember Dante would do this. There was one one guy. Um, I'm sure what happened to the guy, but there was one guy. I remember this post like just clearly, and it was like, look at his progress on this exercise. Like he had a number of exercises, and it was like he was just microloading, just like Jordan Peters does, you know, week by week by or every three weeks for like two and a half years, yeah. you know. And he dropped back and he came back to the exercise when he was making load. It's like that's awesome, right? That's and it's so simple. much more powerful. Yeah. And it's simple. Sorry. You know what I mean? It, it really is. is. It's just simple. Yeah. It's simple math. It's it's just simple to do. There there's no uh over-sciencing it. It's just it's just mm-hmm. basic. And that's really mm-hmm. I think the the main thing that I think everybody on the channel really tries to to push home is that it's not about like, you know, 
I think that Dante has literally tried everything in the gym. You know what I mean? If if there yeah. was some sort of secret that everybody's figuring out now, he would have already known. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there is, you know what it comes down to, though, is I think that everybody wants an easier way, be it in training, be it in diet. If you tell them, hey, you can go to reps and reserve and make just as good a progress, that's kind of like saying that, you know, you can uh, eat your diet and still have cupcakes in the evening and make just as good a progress. You know what I mean? There's like, it's it's an easier mm-hmm. And that's, I think, attractive. And that's probably what sells better than saying, hey, if you work really hard and you put everything you have into this and you keep progressing in the gym, which is going to be brutal, it's going to be dangerous, and you're going to have to go through a lot of pain. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> which which yeah. sounds more uh, like a better sales pitch. I think the, the, the easier version does, you know, and it's always been yeah. the case. Right, but but even with a reps reserve model works for people. I hear from oh, people yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, for, for 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 sure. But if you look over time, you know, blast for blast, they go from three you have to progress. Reps reserve to two. There's there's some progression should be there. You should, yeah. You know, if that, you're using reps reserve, I agree. Now, I do think you mm-hmm. can progress with it, or you can grow with it. But you still, there has to be some level of progression in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just can't keep doing that, or you just can't. Like if we take the you know the stretch meet hypertrophy and, and training and length and position, it's like that's not a, a way you can just sprinkle fairy dust on your fairy dust on your sets, yeah. such that they become magical without any progression over time. All right. Something well, listen, we've got a whole bunch of questions now. Um, and and first of all, how do you think okay. you say this guy's name? Because he, he commented later, he was like uh, nutritionista. Yeah, he was like, I don't think Scott knows how to say my name. He said, I know it's really hard, but then he said Caesar. So do we call you Caesar, Caesar I wonder? Caesar. Caesar? Well, I'm very, I'm very, you know, Midwest, so I say Caesar, like little Caesars. Caesar. You know? <laughs> anyway, though, his, his question, though, he said, uh, I wonder if there is a rate of strength gains per year that would be minimum to elicit muscle gains. I find some exercises I keep the same weight year round. He has a few, a little bit more. He says, um, I've asked that because yearly I've been gaining uh, stage weight, um, but uh, there have been some exercises I don't seem to progress a lot on, um, specifically when it comes to pressing exercises. Mm-hmm. So he said stage weight, that just represents, you know, his entire body, so many conditioning is the same. But what's happening with his with his chest? And and it, and it can be um, you know, that he's a kind of a delt triceps um, pusher, so to speak. Mm. And maybe whatever chest um, pec size he's gaining isn't coming on his his pressing exercises per se. Hmm. Um because those are basically driven by the size, and of course, obviously, his nervous system is what's doing the work here. But size of his anterior delts and his triceps, it could be that you know he's not using utilizing those in a way that he could progressively overload, such that the, the pec muscles would, would grow from that. So maybe if he's still active right now, he could ask. We could find out is, is he making he's he's pushing exercises. Imagine he's overhead pressing, and then so so delt and chest exercises. Is he making gains in those muscles? Yeah. Um, simultaneously. Yeah, I wonder. He is still with us too, because he he's he okay. recently added. He said during my prep, I had a strength regression because of my volume, okay. and I clearly shrunk a lot, specifically muscles I was focusing and um, bammering sets. I think he means hammering sets. Yeah, hammering sets. Yeah, that's why. I mean, I've just I don't know how long I've been 
it always made sense to me and it seems to work out really well. You can't, you can't train with the same volume when mm. you're getting deep into a prep. You can, you don't want to lose strength. Like dance with the one who brung you. Yeah. You don't want to lose strength at all. That's a sure sign that something's going backwards. Yeah. Um, I tell people rest more between their sets if they need to take mm-hmm. some more time, keep those loads and the reps where they once were, even if you have to drop the volume to half. Yeah. You yeah. Know, yeah. You know, if you can like, use, like if you can still do, if you could do 200 pounds, whatever for 10 reps being in your prep and you're doing 200 pounds for eight reps, you know, two weeks out, chances are you've kept a lot of the muscle. Yeah. Almost all of it. Yeah. No um, question. It'd be interesting so, to see what his presses looked like too. Like you said, you know, mm-hmm. is he using more delt? Is he using more chest? What's going on there? I mean, Most overall, it sounds like he's growing. Size too. It's, it's interesting. If you notice this, Scott, I'm sure you have. Most people, pressing pressing strength is the thing that is most apt to go down when yeah. people go into a prep. Yeah, it does seem yeah. that way, doesn't it? It's Yeah, it's kind of uncanny. And I, I think some of it is um, because, I mean, there's a reason why we ask, you know, how much do you bench? You know, not how much do you squat or what have yeah, you. Yeah. So a lot of people start off with a lot of focus on on those pressing movements and they want to use as much weight as possible. That's like the that's the metric of the man in the gym. Yeah. You know, is what are you pressing? Yeah. People I mean, sometimes it's cool to see someone who's, you know, doing bent over rows with four plates, right? Oh that's yeah. Passion, that person's strong. Um, but when someone's, you know, on the flat of incline press and they're pressing three or four plates, okay, that guy's strong. Yeah. Everyone know even on the machines people people make notice of that. So what I think this is just a generalized thing, it's not true for everybody, is that there's more ego involved in mm. pressing movements yeah. amongst guys. So it becomes less of a pec movement and more of a I'm gonna engage as much muscle mass as I possibly can to move the most weight for the number of reps. Yeah. Right? That's interesting. So there it, are some exercises yeah. that are more ego focused, and then there are some exercises mm-hmm. that people don't really focus on ego wise like you're you're mm-hmm. allowed to lift a comfortable weight that you can work with on some mm-hmm. things like maybe a lat pull down whereas yep. a deadlift you damn well better be bending that bar you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean you do like um uh like stretchers you know like a um a shoulder extension you know what stretchers are like we use like a rope usually yeah a cable and you know pull deep into your in your Ooh. hips with the bar, yeah. you can't use much weight along those. It's a lat kind of a lat quote unquote finisher exercise. I actually like I mean, John Meadows has I think he kind of came up with that name. I actually okay. like that exercise now, but I do it at the end after I got some pre fatigue in my lats and you can't use shit. Right? Yeah, I like the sound of that. Oh, they're great. Yeah, they work really well. A lot of people. I saw Jordan Peters gym just the other day. Yeah, but you know Jordan's using a stack on everything. Of course, and yeah, like, and, yeah, of course, like and adding plates and this is yeah, on probably the a gym pin in there. <laughs> <laughs> yep, on everything, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Um, and he's using, I don't know, probably seven plates on a 20 or 25 plate stack on yeah. that exercise. And, you know, because it's, 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 it's meant to be, a, it is an isolation exercise. You can't really get, um, if, you, if you, you, you basically can't get a lot of accessory muscles involved the way the exercise is performed. So, yeah, and no one, so no one's, you know, going to say, hey, like, what do you, what do you use for stretchers? <laughs> it's like, what? right yeah so that i think it plays it plays a big role especially like he said i think he said um that he was too stubborn and wanted to hammer volume yeah um, he just posted that yeah i mean i i know that you know you like and, and you know like chest is super important it feels good to get a nice pump 
So you go into the gym, you want to get that pump in your chest, and it can be this sort of uh, feed-forward cycle where you're like, okay, maybe I'm losing some size in my chest, which I don't like. So if I go get a really good pump, you know, it doesn't, it's not as obvious, at least like the one day of the week or multiple days, whenever I train chest, I see my chest is pumped up right. and I don't see that size loss. And what you're doing, of course, is, is speeding accelerated the size loss because mm. you're doing too many sets trying to get a pump, but you don't even have the glycogen to do so. How about this one? So, this is an interesting topic okay. here. He said, Jonathan says, uh, question for you guys. With my two jobs and three kids, proper sleep just isn't possible. Strategies to mitigate the effects of sleep loss on training. I was going to say something that would probably get the uh, uh, the video banned, so I'm not going to say it. You're going to um, recommend something that uh, yeah, Walter right. White would have made? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, naps. Like just a short, quick nap. If at all, like a even a twenty minute nap. I thought you meant nap nap fifties. That's something else. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. there you go. Wrong show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would have been a Dave Crossland's answer, maybe on the show. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, like just a quick little nap. You know, if at all possible. Um, like even like I've done this before when I've had jobs where. Um, you know, I had like an hour lunch break. I go out to my car and I just yep. eat my food as fast as possible. And then I just, you know, if I had 45 minutes, really, I'd take like a 30 minute nap. Yeah, me too. Like 25, sit my timer. And you're, you, it, you don't, you sign like you get a full sleep cycle, but it, and you some wake up a little groggy afterwards sometimes, but yeah. it does make a difference. It's yeah. Really, really helpful. You have so, to train yourself to do that too. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it doesn't always come naturally, yeah. but I did the same thing working for the soda company. And mm-hmm. I would go out to my car on my lunch hour and, uh, you know, clock out, eat my food. And if it was like the summertime, I'd just crank my air and I'd be like, well, this is the cost for admission, you know, living my life. Right. And I crank the air and that nice, cool air would feel so good. I'd sit my seat back and I'd close my eyes and usually set my alarm clock for 25 minutes. And yeah. I, yeah. I trained myself to just be like, boom, I'd wake up then. And another good time is before you go to the gym. I would, if, that, if I yeah. was exhausted, I'd drive to the gym, park in the lot, same thing, sit my seat back, lay back mm-hmm. for 10 minutes, you know, just enough time mm-hmm. to doze off and wake up a little bit mentally refreshed. Mm-hmm. It really, yeah, both of those excellent strategies. So that's kind of the, uh, I mean, yeah, it sounds like he's got kids that are waking him up yeah. and the jobs just preclude getting enough sleep, so... And what about this too, Scott? What about if he, like, it might not seem like much. A lot of times we're like, yeah, I don't have a chance to get good sleep, so I'm just not going to get good sleep. But, like, do you have, let me ask him, do you have an extra, could you start winding down even 20 minutes sooner? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Are you giving yourself that 20 minutes or are you kind of lollygagging and spending time on your phone? Because we can kind of justify it like, well, I had to work all this time and I had my kids to take care of. So I deserve some me time. And then you kind of spend some time doing things when you really could have said, okay, I'm going to get my best workout in tomorrow. That means that uh, I'm going to turn the lights down low, you know, not have bright lights going in my eyes. I'm going to try to avoid screens. I'm going to not have loud sounds coming in. If I am watching TV, I'm not going to watch something that's like like, like action-packed that's going to get my adrenaline pumping. Rambo. You know? yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, no car chases. I'm going to maybe read a book instead. And uh, you can even get like sleepy time tea. I drink that now. It's just a habit. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if it mm-hmm. helps me sleep, but it's like my nighttime ritual where I get my book out 
I get my sleepy time tea, and I know this is time to wind down. I have the lights down low. I have a little book light on my on my book and all that. And you know, I try to I try to set myself up. I make it a habit, a ritual. I train myself to try to get a little bit more rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sleep hygiene, having a having something that you do ritually that you the, the catch 22 behind that is when you hit it right there with wanting to have that personal time and i've seen this is like especially when i've been like doing a lot of work and now I, I have like this i have simultaneously two needs that are sort of counter to one another one is i want to switch my brain away from all the work stuff so i yep. can do something fluffy or whatever and a lot of times that can be on the computer yeah. you know and and instead, so that it's almost like I need X amount of time, like an hour or two of something where I'm, it's not work related, but then it cuts into your time. Right. And you're not shutting down. Yeah. So having that, that one moment of sort of, of awareness, of sort of quote unquote disciplined awareness where you say, okay, I'm not going to fall into this trap of, you know, spending the next, you know, two hours futzing around on Instagram because I need to find some way to shut my brain off. I'm going to find some way to shift that and get into um, a, a sleep um, pattern or a sleep um, promoting pattern right, that right. doesn't keep awake, but also allows me to shift out of work mode and everything else to downshift from the bu- hustle and bustle of the day. Yeah, and it's tough because I mean I have my you probably notice I have my phone set up. You know everything goes to goes um, eight o'clock. It shuts down. Yeah, um, yeah. mode is what's it, silent. What do they call it? You know the, my what do they call it in your language, English? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, 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 I think it's just Sleep. like the do not disturb mode or silent mode. Do not disturb, mode. yeah, whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it, like it's nice. Like I see it sometimes. I'm on the phone. Like okay, good. And I, I don't get messages. I don't, yeah. Nothing comes through, right? And yep. I really don't, you know, futz around. It's. I mean, it's. You have to be careful because if someone important calls you, you have to put them in your, in the in the right. You can categorize them so that if calls can come through. Yeah. But even I'll even be like on using my phone at that point, like listening to a, something while I'm making the dogs food, whatever. And I don't get phone calls from people. I'm like, they called and it doesn't go through. Right. So, but but that's super helpless. Like, really, the way I see it, like, I, if I did everything I was supposed to have done during the day by eight o'clock, I don't have any real need unless I futzed around or like I've got some special thing. I don't have any need to be be doing things actively doing work related stuff after eight p.m. In yeah. Most cases. And even if you the know. kids are still up, let's say he only has a half hour, you can help the kids with their sleep cycle by making yeah. sure that the lights are turned down low, that there aren't any mm-hmm. loud sounds happening. Help them to calm down too and help yourself in the process, you know? Yeah. My, my uncle called it the off switch. And that's what that, hmm. like, I see it, you know, it comes across, um, the little icon flies across. It's like, okay, at this point, like it's done. <clears throat> the yeah. day is over. Like any things that I, I thought like I needed to, to finish, it's like, <clears throat> nope, it's out the door. It's kind of like, kinda like it, it'd be like if you had a, so the problem with some, some, and for me, especially I could work all day long. Yeah. Oh yeah. Me too. Schedule. Yeah. You could, you too. So, but if you have a business that shuts down at, you know, it's a nine to five, it shuts at five. Well, then you're done. Right. And there's nothing you can do. Like you can't be selling more of whatever you sell in your business after five because the doors are shut. And there's no customers coming in. Right, but you and I, and maybe what he does is something he could conceivably be doing throughout the night. So he, you have to sort of create an artificial um, delineation between work time and you time, um, and it needs to be more than artificial. It needs to be actual. Yeah. That's why I do it with my phone, and it's like it's a no go. You're not going to think about that stuff. It's done, right? And whatever it might be, something to to allow you to switch. So. 
All right. Another question here I see. Casey has one. He says, um, is it common to see leg extensions as a warm-up workout? Um, if you want to use this example or this exercise for max effort for quad development, would you recommend placing them later or doing them twice, etc.? Where do you put leg okay. extensions in a workout for quad development, I guess is the question. Depends on depends on the person and what tends to develop their quads the best. So you can use it as a warm-up. That's totally fine. A lot of people do that, you know. And then you can use them as a um, for working sets later on. Yep. Um, like I said, it, it tends to do better for the rectus femoris mm. than other exercises do. Just There's some data suggesting that. Um, you know, one, one of the things you can even help with that is dorsiflex your feet and almost think about lifting your legs up off of the of the seat ah, i like that extension yeah. yeah and you can i mean you can feel it light them up um another way you can't it's hard to do this but another way if you want to do stretch medial hypertrophy is if you can find like some of the old school there's one where like um tom platz was doing knee extensions on it and he, he's, he's leaning way back you can actually do knee extensions in the um in the recline position all the way back no kidding. Um, yeah, on on old school machines, on those combo machines that are yeah. knee extension hamstring curls. Yeah. Where, so you could you're laying flat face down for the hamstring curls, and then you sit up face the other direction for the knee extension. But you can lay all the way back, and then you're yeah. and then you've got your rectus femoris stretched at the knee when you're at full knee flexion, huh. and at the hip because you've got yeah. hip extension. You're laying all the way back, and those and, are brutal on your rectus femoris. Yeah, they sound like they would be. And oh, you know, I've awesome. got so I have a seated uh, extension. I wonder, um, I mean, I, I can push that. Yeah, I could push that seat way far back. I couldn't completely recline, but I'm sure I could get way back in the seat if I allowed myself to, you know? you depends on, like, how the frame is of the thing. But one thing, if you take the seat out of there, just, you know, uh, take it out. And then you have to go to one side or the other, but just do one leg at a time. Okay, you'll yeah. Be, you'll, be off, you'll be off kilter if you tried to, you know, leave, go to the... Because you have to avoid the post where the seat goes. <laughs> right, but, right. Like riding a bike without off, a seat. Yeah, right. Yeah, not good. Um, but you could lean way back and you can do one leg at a time that way and get, you know, and you'll, you'll notice that. And that becomes like kind of a different exercise. Yeah. Feel. But um, so, you know, like without going into all like the pre-fatigue literature, you know, look at EMG and that kind of stuff. We talked about that before. It's been but a long time, do, though. What would be the Cliff's yeah. notes on that? Because I was going to ask um, you. All right. So what they see a lot of times is that uh, you don't see greater active. The idea is that if you pre-fatigue with a leg extension and then go to like a quad or pre-fatigue the pecs and then go to a, a bench press or what have you, that the, the idea is that if you, if that would then create, create greater activation in the pre-fatigue muscle. The problem is in a fatigued muscle, we have this phenomenon of muscle wisdom where um, feedback, especially in the spinal cord, actually adjust the activation pattern in the muscle that's fatigued because it doesn't need the same high firing rate so that change in activation pattern which Wait, matches the fatigue mm -hmm. i'm sorry can you say that one more sure. time i want to make sure i understood it i was okay. so hung up on sure. the term i was like muscle yeah. wisdom that is such a cool oh, freaking term it's a great term right yeah um uh, Brenda Biglin Ritchie, I think, is the first person that wrote that so yeah what what happens if you look at the um when muscle fatigues it's contractile properties slow. Right. Right. So if like, if you can see this in particular um, with electrical stimulation, if where you can evoke like twitches and muscle. Yeah. Uh, so let's say you fatigue a muscle. If you, if you, if you have electricity on a muscle, you have like an electrode there and you, it's totally fresh and you just send a singular pulse down. 
the muscle will go whoop. Especially if it's a very fast twitch muscle, it'll contract and relax really quickly. Slower twitch will be a little bit slower. And then if you were fatigued that muscle, do a you know high rep set or do a bunch of e-stim on it and then send another pulse to it, um, the muscle contract more slowly and it will relax more slowly and also produce less force. So that twitch force and the rate of twitch development, force development, and the rate of relaxation will be slower. So when muscles being activated by the nervous system, um, you've got impulses that are coming down through the motor neurons to the fibers in that motor unit. And those, those, um, the firing rate, the frequency of those impulses match the contractile properties of the fibers connected to that nerve. So if you have fast twitch fibers or fibers that would tend to have more type 2 myosin, um, those are going to be faster. They require higher firing frequencies to cause what's called a fused tetanus. So let's see if we can, we can see so if, if you have a, a muscle that, that when you twitch it, it goes up and down really fast, right? So let's say twitch, 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 it's really fast. Um, and you just, so you, let's say it's a two, two hertz, so twice a second, twitch, twitch, twitch. So the force just goes back and forth. Let's imagine a really slow muscle, and the force goes with one twitch, goes up and down. Okay. Very slowly like that. And now we send two pulses in. Twitch, 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 twitch. It would never have time to relax. Yeah. So a slower muscle requires a lower frequency of firing. Okay. So so if you have type 1 fibers and type 2 fibers, the neurons that go to the type 1 fibers are going to be activating those type 1 fibers at 25 hertz, let's say. But those type 2 fibers might need to be activated at 30 hertz, Yeah. right? So the nervous system is coordinating all this shit, right? It's going on a lot of things in the spinal cord. Obviously, what how you activate the muscles happens in the brain. Very, very complicated um, things going on just to do all this coordinating everything. We've got this neuromechanical matching going on. We've got your voluntary ability. We've got pain that's feeding back. We've got um, type 3 and type 4 afferents that are picking up on metabolic stress. Those are feeding back to the, the, um, the spinal cord. So what happens, and that's what this muscle wisdom phenomenon is, is that as muscle fatigues and it goes from being fast or faster to being slow or slower, it no longer needs as high of a firing rate to get that nice smooth tetanus because instead of going up and down, up and down, like oh, God, we need 40 hertz because the thing's so fast, we can now go at 25 hertz because it's slower. Okay. So the force won't come da- down so quickly. So we don't need to we don't need to expend extra energy by sending sending um, depolarization waves, sending signals down those nerves at forty hertz when twenty five hertz will do the job. Okay. Because every t- every time we send a signal down there, there's there's ions that are moved around and it's energetically expensive. It's not a it's not a freebie. Okay. So so when muscle gets fatigued, the firing rate adjusts itself. Oh, okay. So if you pre-fatigue and then you get onto, say you do a a dumbbell or you do a fly and then you get onto the bench press, Mm -hmm. you, what's happening then? You're going to see compared to in the fresh condition, you're going to see because the muscles fatigue, even if you're just doing a one rep max, you're going to, you would expect to see a lower firing rate and thus a lower EMG because we have this muscle wisdom phenomenon. It's not really in the muscle, it's in the spinal cord. Okay. 
but so so the the rate of firing and thus the EMG, which is measuring electrical field potentials changing because of the flow of these ions that are involved with the depolarization wave, we're going to see a lower EMG in the fatigue muscle. No matter what, that's just what happens. EMG declines as muscle, even if effort is maximal, right? And then we can we can talk about how much muscle you can activate, motor unit activation percentage. That's a whole other other topic we'll leave to the side. But even if you're activating just as much muscle, if it's fatigued and you're activating as hard as you can, the muscle wisdom um, principle and the muscle wisdom phenomenon means that the firing rate's less, so the EMG is left less. So if 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 you if this is sort of the um, sort of the, the logical fallacy, the, the, the sort of the fault in thinking that happens or it's been sort of part of what I've seen in many of these pre-fatigue studies is they're thinking, okay, if we pre-fatigue the chest before you do presses or we pre-fatigue the quad, like doing knee extensions, back to the original question here, before you do um, uh, leg presses, let's say, yeah. that, then that pre-fatiguing should mean greater activation in the quads during the leg presses. Right. But even if the, um, the relative effort is the same, the EMG is going to be less because the muscle's fatigued. Right. Okay. And so when they compare the fresh condition where you've got higher EMGs at a given relative effort and the fatigue condition, what you see in, I think all of the studies is the EMG is the same. So you would expect it to go down, but it actually is the same. Hmm. So that so that tells me that you've got actually an enhanced EMG activity relative to what you would expect in the fatigue condition, which is exactly what you want to have. You've got greater reliance on that muscle is having to do more than it would otherwise. And the EMG not going down indicates that that is indeed the case. So you do actually sort of create a situation where that fatigue muscle is being relied upon more so than it would be. Um, because your nervous system is trying to coordinate everything. So let's say um, you've got certain amount for to do the leg press, make it a squat or whatever. You've got a certain amount of quad activation that's necessary, hamstring activation, adductors, everything has to be in sequence. So you can pr- perform that, although you're held in a, you know, in a plane of motion with the leg press, um, you've still got an activation pattern. And so the relative force being produced by the quads and the hamstrings and the glutes let's say for a set of 10 with X load, um, your nervous system is going to want to make that the same in the fresh condition versus the fatigue condition, hmm. right? And so the fact that the EMG is the same and not less in that fatigue condition suggests that there's relatively more effort going to the fatigue quad um, so that the force will be the same. So you actually have done what you're hoping to have done, which is make that quad... Um, activate that quad more so than it would have been. Yeah, yeah. But the but the, the studies are they're not they don't recognize they don't recognize that you're expecting EMG to go down in the fatigue condition. Hmm. They're not accounting for that. Okay. So that's the muscle. So you can indeed, at least from what I the way I interpret those studies, this isn't I've not even seen this mentioned in discussion anywhere. They've just sort of forgotten this muscle wisdom principle, which has been around from like the fifties. Um, it's pretty you know kind of basic muscle physiology. Um, that the muscle doesn't, because if the muscle kept on activating at 40 hertz, you'd have, you'd probably, you'd have um, nerve fatigue mm, or neuromuscular yeah. fatigue at the neuromuscular junction because that nerve would be doing much more work than it needs to and it'd be, it, it would potentially shift the locus of fatigue towards the nervous system, right? And it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to try to turn on a muscle 
um, more frequently than you need to, which is it's just wasteful energy. So, um, so anyway, so you can you could do the quad, you could do the knee extensions as a pre-fatiguing exercise for sure. If you have exercises you like to do and you want to make them more quad focused, in, in my experience, that can actually happen. And you, I mean, you, you you know this at least as best you possibly can. Um, when you do, after pre-fatiguing, you do a squat or a leg press, and you get done with the set, and you truly went to all-out failure, and your quads are absolutely killing you, yeah. and, and you don't have as much muscle pump, et cetera, in the other muscles. Now, is that perfect? Is that the perfect indicator? No. But does, does it, is, it some, is it strong anecdotal evidence? I would say yes. It tells you that something's going on there, yeah. especially because you would expect that your performance would be less. So... If you're fresh and you can do 500 pounds in leg press for 12 reps, and now you go and your effort's the same and you're going all out, and now you're doing 500 pounds for eight reps in the pre-fatigue condition, and your quads are killing you, and you don't have the same sense of fatigue in, in your hamstrings, your glutes, which you typically would had you not pre-fatigued, tells me that you you shifted the locus of fatigue, the failure point, on the in the kinetic chain towards the quads. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, well, having... Yeah. Having seen Casey's physique, I will say this: that I don't think you need to really focus a ton on quads right now. He's a men's okay. physique guy. He has an <laughs> yeah. overall pretty dense physique. Doesn't he's matter. looking to yeah, yeah, he's looking to bring up his arms. You know, if he was going to bring up anything, maybe a little, little bit of hamstring. Maybe I, I think that hamstrings mm -hmm. are the thing that people tend to. You know, you. I, I saw it in my own life. I had small legs, and and uh, then I grew my quads Stop first. Thighs. Yeah. yeah. Not small yeah. calves, probably. Uh, yeah, they they were they were not bad uh, the whole time. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. then after I had uh, quads, I still needed hams, you know. And you see that a lot, like in mm -hmm. uh, we'll say like sophomore bodybuilders, sophomore competitive bodybuilders. They've gotten some level of development. They still have a long way to go, you know. And and that that quads tend to, I think, for a lot of people, they tend to grow faster. Would you agree with that for a lot of people than hamstrings? Hamstrings are an afterthought most of the time. Yeah, yeah, and maybe People it's because we can't see them. Yeah, well, is there is there a specific rule? Because I've seen some competitors in men's physique, and they they they're getting the shorts are getting tighter now, and they're they're kind of creeping them up above the knee, so you can see a little bit of of thigh muscle development. Is there is there a rule as to how long they're supposed to be? I think they just they just enacted something about that. Okay. Like uh, I can't remember what the yeah. specifics are, but I I think they did. It is interesting though because years back they just wore real baggy shorts, and nowadays mm -hmm. any of the guys that are worth their salt are you know they've got tight shorts on, and you can see that they train legs. You know what yes, I mean? Exactly. Same thing happened with classic physique. Oh yeah. Right now you see now it's it's full blown glutes, right? Yeah, yeah. Everyone's the backers that that completely just you know slid away. Real dense lower bodies up. in that division. Yeah. Yeah, but but the but the glute. You remember the course that this wasn't that long ago, but the but the suits. You know, were special. They're they were like they bike shorts. Really, they came yeah. halfway down your leg. Remember that the first pairs? Oh, for classic. Physique? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. When they I, I remember when that them first came out, kind of squared off. Yeah, when that first came out, they were they were long, like somewhat longer. Oh, you know, in the for first short period. Yeah, for the yeah. short period in the first season, yeah. and and then after that, they've just gotten to the point where now they're they're, they're cut to show the cheeks. Front. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> basically. The only difference is they have like a thicker waistband on the sides. You know, they they don't come yeah. up to like a string. You know, I don't know, like look at Urs Kalitsensky, like his oh you know, yeah full glutes. You know, it was so crazy because obviously conditioning was you know on a premium there versus size. 
Yeah. And they're hiding the glutes. Yeah. No kidding. You know, no kidding. But, but, but it's the same. This is kind of my soapbox thing, but it's, it's interesting. I think part of, I suspect part of what's, um, behind that to some degree is they're, they're lowering the barrier to entry, so to speak. So, Mm. You know, with men's physique, you don't have to train legs. You know, you, it's just kind of an upper body contest, and that's okay. So the shorts were, were you know, longer, and, like, and the calves are, you know, sort of ignored for the most part. And then with classic physique, it was about shape, right? And it yeah. wasn't about conditioning. So, you, the, the, so you, if your glutes are striated or not, it doesn't matter. So you could yeah. win on shape, you know, beautiful structure, wide clavicles, et cetera. And then things became, okay, now we have a shift slowly men's physique. The quads do matter. You start wearing like really tight shorts so you can see if they have a quad sweep. Yeah. And now in classic physique, yeah, they want to see if you have stri- striated glutes because that's actually – so those things that were initially there, they kind of got you in the door. It's like, gosh, I hope I don't get you know piss anybody off. But sort of like a you know, used car salesman. They sell you, tell you what you kind of want to hear and then they say, oh, yeah, we got this extra fee. We got the extra fee and, and things change. I don't think yeah. the athlete's balking at it. No, you know, no. Not at all. Especially the but, guys with good but, glutes. <laughs> absolutely absolutely um and they got plenty of competitors too but it was i think yeah. that was sort of the psychology of the new divisions when they first came in yeah and it, and it just shifted over time matt sharp says it's two inches uh above the knee that's where the new men's physique division okay. trunks are or shorts are supposed to be okay so there we go um let's see if we got we got maybe time for one more here from chris he says uh so chris was the guy who initially said consistency is what he thought we were going to talk about which he wasn't wrong consistency is important and i guess consistency is a big part of progressive overload too so you will give you points for that um yeah we'll just throw this one in he says a question for dr scott do you think the nutrition of the trainees in the studies should be tracked to get better data instead of just training data. It seems to be an important missing piece. I, I'd freaking agree with that, man. It, no, nowadays, typically, you do you see nutrition. It's just you know dietary recall, but the yeah. data are there to compare. Yeah, the okay. data are there. Um, I mean, it's such a variable, been, right? Oh, it's huge, of course. It's the thing that, you know, uh, taking these ideas and applying them practically is you would look – you know, it's someone who starts off and they're at 3,000 calories. And let's say you're doing like, this is just, a, I'm not trying to pick on this study and keep on bringing up this, keep kicking the dead horse, but let's say you're increasing your volume. You're going to use that. You're going to have a specialization cycle, right? And you increase volume and trying to hold everything else. And you're finding like, okay, this is kind of getting harder to recover from, but I'm making good gains and I'm not getting fat. Well, then in addition to whatever, whatever programmatic training changes you would make, you would also make changes in the diet. Well, they don't, they don't do that in the studies, you know? So if you do have someone whose perceived recovery is dropping, right, there's various things you could do, of course, like take a day off training, you know, do, have a deload, stop progressing the volume as fast as you possibly would, or say, okay, well, gosh, you know, you're not eating a whole lot. Um, if we're going to make these gains, we're going to have, there's going to be probably some body fat that's going to have to come with it. It's just sort of the name of the game to some degree. Once you get, you know, to higher levels, not everyone can, you know, have the holy grail of dropping fat gain levels at the same time. So you're going to have to eat more, and that's another factor that, you know, they they do track and and um, I mean dietary recall. The evidence it's horrible. Yeah, Chris asked nothing. what that is. He says, uh, "Is that where they just ask them what they had eaten over the past week?" Yeah, it's more than just like, "Hey, dude, what'd you eat?" Like they actually have you know specific forms, and they ask them to write down everything they eat, the the amounts, and and then um, you know. It depends on how they do it. You know, it could be two two weekdays and a weekend. Um, 
but yeah, they, you know, people, people, it can be, it can be way, way, way off. Okay. Um, people attend the, uh, the under report when they're in a dieting type of study, um, kind of tend to over report if, if they're, they're supposed to be eating uh, a certain amount. So, um, the thing I would, I'm not even sure about is typically what you see is there's no differences between these groups. Um, if, if you might tend to see some bias towards error in reporting based on the training regime, someone's following, right? But here's, but here's something to consider too. Like, let's say you have one group that's doing 22 sets, um, per week and the other group is doing works their way up to 52 sets per week and, there's no change and everything else stays the same. This is what we don't in that particular study. We didn't, they didn't report or record even what other training was going on. They just left it up to the competitors, left up the train to the trainees, the okay. subjects. This is like, okay. So the guys who were in the higher volume group, I've been saying, okay, I'm not doing, I'm not doing shit. I'm just, all I need to do is focus on recovering because these leg days suck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is all I got to do. Um, and, uh, I don't believe there were dietary differences in that study. Pretty sure they recorded you see it typically, and, and typically it's like, okay, no difference, not even worth mentioning. But that's okay. something that that can make a difference. If everything else is the same, and one yeah. group is is their training volume is twice as high, and their their nutrition intake is the same, yeah. well, then the nutrition is not keeping pace with the training, and there there should be some matching going on there. Hmm. So that's a di- once again, that's a different question. Hmm. And the thing that we need to you know, as, sort of as practitioners, as coaches. As, okay, how much can we apply this? Is like, to what extent is that a limitation? Yeah. Right. If if someone, I mean, in that study, I'm not suggesting they didn't increase the volume at all in all the training those people were doing. In fact, we don't know what they were doing, as I said, in the in, when they're training the other muscle groups. They just left it up to them to do whatever they wanted to do. But let's say they hold everything the same at some minimal volume that allows them to hold on to the muscle mass they had, so they didn't detrain there. Um, it's going to vary. Some people, if you're if you're taking in, if you're at five thousand calories a day, you know, and you go from twenty two sets a week to fifty two sets a week, um, that might be enough to handle that. If you, but if you, um, if you're at three thousand calories a day, and that's you know you're keeping pace with that training volume, and then over time you add more and more and more, yeah. and there's no adjustment in the in the in the uh, diet. That, that's going to severely limit your ability to to adapt to the training regime. Absolutely. So if that's not happening concomitantly, it's like, you know, what this doesn't this doesn't tell us a whole heck of a lot. Right. Of course, and that's, there were no statistical differences amongst the different groups, the different training volume regimes. Was, they're all they were all the same statistically speaking. Hmm. When we looked at the values; it was very different. So that's what would be really interesting. That's another thing. You know, we look at those individuals who some of whom regressed and some of whom made progress. At least, what are the correlations? It doesn't tell us necessarily causation, but is there an association between the extent to which they progressed, um, their loads, their reps, etc.? Because they were also progressing in that study, um, using progressive overload, and they were also progressing the volume. So they were trying to increase the loads mm-hmm. as they progressed over time, and increasing the volume in those two groups that did so. Yeah. But it would also be interesting to see. You'd have to do it's a lot more data to gather, but. Is there also an so we might expect some association between the extent to which strength increased doesn't always happen in some of these studies. It's always kind of like, hmm, think about why that might be the case. Um, But what's the association? How much explanatory power do we have when we look 
at the nutrition piece. Is it possible that whatever variation that we can explain 50% of the variance in training gains in all those regimes from variation in dietary intake, um, especially if they're not controlling the diet, they just let people eat more. I mean, there's a there's a problem, you know, when you train, the harder you train, the, the more of a um, anorexic effect, not anorexia nervosa, but a, a, a negative impact on your appetite. Mm-hmm. Hunger goes down. You go and train legs really hard, especially in the heat. Like, you don't feel like going to have a giant meal unless you're, you know, four weeks out from a show. Right. People don't want to eat a lot. So it's, so it's, it can be a difficult thing to, to match the, the energy expenditure, um, especially the harder you're training. So it'd be interesting, and that varies somewhat. So what kind of explanatory power is it? Is the issue that, for instance, um, like let's say, just I'm making this up, this wasn't something found in the study, but let's say that because there was no difference between the low and the middle and the high volume training, statistically speaking, um, it's like interesting. But we look at, when we look at all the subjects or when we look at in, in, in each of those groups, or these, each of the conditions, that the extent to what they adapted was a function of the extent to which their which their nutrition increased, or maybe that only mattered in the higher higher training volume group, right? Yeah. So we see like, uh oh, you can actually adapt well, and if in those individuals who didn't grow very well from the training volume, it's because because they ate less. They went from three thousand calories to twenty five hundred calories, let's say on average, and in the non responders or the poor responders, but the, the the extreme responders, those were the ones who tended to eat in accordance to the energetic demands of the training they ate in a way that that accelerated or supported the recovery needed to adapt to that higher training volume and those are data that could be had but they're typically kind of not done because that's that's not the specific question being asked um it just sort of assumed that the you know the nutrition's kind of floating around in the background there yeah um, but it but there's exp- potential explanatory power um that could be had and i don't see that typically analyzed Maybe I'm sure there's some studies I've missed. Absolutely, there must be some that have looked at that. But so that's an important thing too: is that the, the nutrition isn't necessarily matching the training. Um, and you know, you know, any personal trainer knows that you know the, that needs to happen. And the train, like when you diet down, you're eating less. Training volume would tend to be less because you can't recover as much. Right. If you're trying to gain weight and you're adding more volume, trying to gain more muscle, then you should have some nutritional support for that to match. Yeah. But that doesn't happen in the studies. They don't match those those things generally. Yeah, it would it would give us I could see that more insight. But hey, listen, that's all the time we've yeah. got here for today, and we appreciate yeah. everybody tuning in on the live stream. Um, I think we got to everybody's questions, and I you some you some of you guys were like commenting to each other. All that's freaking great. The more you comment while we're live, the more that helps to push the show into the algorithm. So thank you for everybody who's commented, and if you haven't liked this yet, if you got something out of it, then please hit the like button because that'll also help us out a ton. Um, of course, check out our sponsors, byobbcoach.com. That's Scott's book. You can also go to Amazon, get the hardcover. And Scott's got a link to get the hardcover. Send that to me. I'll put it in the description um, for $15 off of the hardcover. Might not be in time for Christmas. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, but they'll want to, if they're here, they want it here. So send it to me. I'll put it in the description. We'll, we'll make that happen. And of course, check cool. out truenutrition.com. Use our code think for additional savings. Um, check out all their carb powders. They got everything from really cheap stuff like carbo load. It's a good, high quality, uh, complex carbohydrate. It's like, I think $10 for what'll end up being, a. if you use 30 grams a day, 
it'll be or 25 grams a day it'll be like a 60 workout supply so if you're strapped for cash that's a great carb to use if you want to go to the cadillac you can get highly branched cyclic dextrin personally i use their mpa muscle intrusion which also has eaa so it's a complete all-in-one intra workout great product great flavor love the lemon ice use our code think for additional savings supplementsource.ca for canadians great deals that change week to week including you get after drink because it's legal in canada and of course thank you to everybody from patreon you guys are freaking awesome scott it's always a pleasure to hang out with you and talk science on a sunday Likewise. morning absolutely my man my pleasure all right see you guys adios And we are...